The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game Changing Women, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from powerful women leaders who will share their playbooks on how to manage smarter, be more successful, and change your game. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you're in the right place. The second time I'm saying that today, I said it about an hour and a half ago on our first show this morning, Transforming Your Business. Today, you're listening right now to Game Changing Women Radio. If you're following this series, it's episode number two. We're delighted to be here. Let me get started. The buzz today? Listen up. A seat at the table. What is she talking about? Well, let's get started. Look around the average American corporate boardroom. Guess what? How many women do you see? I'm going to tell you, only about one out of six of the seats are filled with women. Questions for you, our audience, our global audience around the world. Why should gender imbalance in the boardroom matter to you? If you're a woman listening or you know somebody who should be listening, how can you or she get on a board? And perhaps even more important, how can you help other women get there if that's what they aspire to? And let's take a broader, broader look. What approaches, policies, and strategies in corporations today could help make this happen? We'll tell you during the show why it is a good thing but we want to make it happen more. I have a quote here from SVP, Chief Learning Officer and Series Executive Producer Jenny Dearborn at SAP, and she observes, the status quo will not change until we can gently pry open the hands of those who are controlling our corporate boardrooms. Jenny always has something brief and to the point, and that's what we're talking about today. We have two experts on the panel. We're going to have a great conversation. Let me welcome first a newcomer. They're both newcomers to our show, Dr. Dana R.D., A-R-D-I is the founder of Corporate Anthropology Advisors. And Dana sent me a wonderful quote from George Carlin. I I have to laugh before I even read it. The quote is, men are from Earth, women are from Earth, deal with it. Did he really say that, Dana R.D.? How are you today? I'm fine, thank you so much. Yes, well, George Carlin is one of my heroes. And whenever I have an occasion to quote him, I do. And I think that this is very astute, and this was done 20 years ago. And he basically recognized that there are men and there are women, and we both make up the human population, so deal with it. So, um, and in that regard, I think he was also talking to corporate America. The diversity he recognized in the population is the diversity that we see in the workplace. Dana, I think these are words of wisdom for everywhere in our lives and probably have been. If somebody would have just taken George Carlin more seriously and said, you know, George, you're absolutely right. We are all from Earth and we have to deal with another way of uh, phrasing that, I guess, at the end would be get over it. Get over yourself. Do something about it. Really good choice of a quote for our opening. Thank you, Dana. And let me bring on your co-panelist now. She's Dr. Patty Fletcher, the head of content marketing at IHS and co-founder and CEO of the PSD Network 
Network, LLC. Patty sent me what will soon be immortalized as an original Patty Fletcher quote. Here we go. Your job as a transformational leader is not to change people. It is to enable people to change themselves. How profound. Patty Fletcher, welcome. How are you today? I'm great, Bonnie. How are you? Good to talk with I'm you. And, and good to talk with you. I don't know if Dana knows, but Patty and I worked together a couple of years ago at SAP, and Patty very briefly, all too briefly, was a mentor for me. So, Patty, I'm delighted to have you. Very it's happy you're here. It's great to be here. It's great. And, and, Dana, I love that quote, and I am going to steal it. Um, it is <laughs> fantastic. And, and you know, the, the quote that I chose, I mean, really what we're dealing with here is a need for a paradigm shift. Right, and very much what Jenny said about gently prying the hands open. I, of course, am going to ignore the word gently. Um, but what, what we do need are for things to change, right? From the how folks are earmarked for the talent pool to the boardroom to getting in that boardroom to what happens when you're in that boardroom. And it does require a paradigm shift. And often what I've heard over the years, and Dan, I'm sure you've heard it too, is it becomes important to the people who are in those power positions when they have a daughter. I hear that all the time. Well, mm. I have a daughter. I want her to have equal access. She should be able to do it. Not a wife, not a mother, not a sister, but a daughter. And that becomes their <clears throat> paradigm shift. And getting to those folks who are in the boardroom, to Jenny's point, they have to have a catalyst. I can't go tell somebody, go change, it's important. They have to get there themselves. And our job, the folks on this phone, is really to give them then the tools that they need to go down that path of change, to make that change happen. Thank you, Patty. You know, Very well that, put. Yeah, go ahead, Dana, please. That, that reminds me of another favorite quote, as long as we're giving some uh, respect to George Carlin, and it'll yes. lead us into the next part of the discussion. Here's my other favorite George Carlin quote. Some people see things that are and ask why. Some people dream of things that never were and ask why not. Some people have to go to work and don't have time for all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Dana, I had that in my notes, and if you didn't bring it up, I was about to go there. Great minds think alike. I love that one. But I have a question for both of you, Dana and Patty, whoever wants to chime in. Why is this so important? Now, I know one or both of you will probably bring up some research that shows that companies with women on boards tend to do better financially and with business success. But aside from that, here's my question. Why would a woman want to be on a board if traditionally it's been a male bastion, the good old boys network? That's where the boys go. I don't know if they're smoking or have keys to the executive male washroom. I don't know what they're doing. But why would a woman want to? What is the allure, the attraction? Mm-hmm. Is it a career move? Why? Let's start from the very beginning. Why are we even having this conversation? Getting on board, women in the boardroom is our topic today. But my question is why do we even care? Why do we aspire? Dana, you want to take that first, please? Sure. First of all, you know, we we talk about diversity and we're talking about men and women, but, you know, I think we have to basically look back into the history of how how this came about and, you know, why um, there are boards in the first place. And the reason is the boards originally were constituted to be the consigliere's or the advisors to the CEO and the management team. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, they were selected from among shareholders or experts that could come in and enhance the business knowledge that individuals uh, needed in their toolkits to run their businesses effectively. 
somewhere somewhere in the last 10 years with Sarbanes-Oxley, which is the law that is there to mitigate against erosion of shareholder value. Boards have become police forces or, you know, still looking after the interests of the shareholders, but not at the same time being the same kind of consigliaries to the management teams. There's been a, a, a little bit of a switch of emphasis. And one of the opportunities now is to go back to those roots. I think a good board has to be both. They have to watch over and maintain the shareholders' interests. But it's not about being a police force and policing the corporation as much as it is really representing the shareholders, many of whom are the population of men and women that constitute the company or the community that is the company. And so we have to go back to the roots of advice and counsel. And when I talk about diversity, I'm not only talking about diversity of men and women, but diversity of age and responsibility. It used to be that they only recruited people to boards that were CEOs, mm-hmm. not advisors, not industry specialists, not subject matter experts. And I think contemporary boards now are saying, wait a minute, we need some expertise that don't reside on our management team. How can we find the best athlete, male or female, you know, and now it opens up the pool to many, many smart, savvy women who can come and bring an emotional intelligence uh, to mentor and coach the management team and a subject matter expert, for example, social media or use of technology or, you know, um, industry expertise because there's a customer set that they represent in the industry. And... Uh, um, so it's not only male and female, but it's diversity of thought, diversity of age, um, diversity of culture. Some mm-hmm. companies that are going global now are looking to build boards that have international presence. So I think we're seeing the change. And, you know, that's good, and it's particularly good for women because their value is being recognized. And Catalyst, which is an organization that looks into the research, has come up with several studies, the bottom-line studies of corporate governance and corporate performance that say when women are on the board and they represent the interests and are representatives of part of the diversity of thought that exists in the company, that financial performance, in fact, is improved, as well as some of the other things we're talking about in terms of bringing their unique skill set to the boardroom. Thank you, Dana. Good background on that. I appreciate that. Uh, sounds like it's now no longer just bragging rights on who's on your board, but what can they do for you? A little bit of democratizing. Dr. Patty Fletcher, thoughts on board composition? Why would women want to be on a board? Tell me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and adding on, Dana, to, to your thoughts. So for the last, gosh, since 2008, I've been researching those unique characteristics that women who hold public board seats have. I've done an awful lot of interviews with women who hold seats on public technology companies and life sciences companies and asking them how did they get there, right, to a place where not only so few women have gone, but so few people have. Not everybody should be on a board. Not everybody is board material. And Dana, to your point about the role of the board, Absolutely. It's to choose the CEO to, to coach that CEO. It's to put those policies into place, those practices into place that not only shift a company, but potentially, depending on the company, can shift an industry. And so with all of that in mind and talking with these women, I ask them why. 
right? Why mm-hmm. all that hard work to get there? There is an awful lot of sacrifice when you are that dedicated to your career. Why? And the truth is because of the role of the board, it is the one place where you can create those policies. And these women were very vision and purpose driven. And they knew that the only way that they could make this big vision, big purpose, new market opportunity, um, filling this huge gap that requires just such significant changes that only a board position that would enable them to do that, that's Mm -hmm. why they went for it. And then when they got into the boardroom, I do have to say that not one of them has been successful in bringing other women in to the boards. And these are women who are very seasoned board members, so there is a problem there. But the board dynamics themselves change, especially if three out of ten folks in that that room are women. But it is important for those things to change. Absolutely, a board member's role is about shareholder value, but it's also a stakeholder theory. When decisions are made, it's not simply A to B, right? There's There's that kind of groupthink that happens. Lots of times, the folks who are in that room, you know, they they went to college together, they were roommates, right? 100% of board seats are filled by people who you know and and make it very, very clear here is that being on a board, it's all about who knows you, not who you know, right? It's all referral. You get vetted after the referral in order to get there. So these women are there because they know it's the place that they can make a difference, not just for the shareholders, but for the industry. They take that view of if we do this, these people would be impacted. These operations would be impacted. CEO, you need to consider these things, not just the return. It's um, it's a very, very important perspective that these women know that they bring. And the other thing that every one of these women talked to was, hey, look at the percentage of purchase decisions, whether they're business purchase decisions or customer purchase decisions, whatever that company might be. Guess what? Women are always in the power position. How can your board not reflect who the population is, not only that you're serving as a business, but the community around it? And, Dana, to your point, it really isn't just about gender, right? It really is about having maybe maybe diversity, but really inclusive. Everyone exactly. should be represented, right, based on what that business does, the role of that business and community, which is certainly something we know more and more about and is very, very important. Look at all the sustainability kind of programs and stuff companies have. But that we need that inclusive environment in order to represent the business where it is today, but more importantly, where it's going tomorrow. You can't do that if you have the same people in the boardroom over and over again with a very singular view. Thank you, also, Patty. Dana, go ahead, Dana. Also, mo- most, most boards skew much older. And yeah. many of the yes. board members, even though they were senior in their companies for their time, are, are not in touch with the current trends of how uh-huh. technology, for example, is impacting business, et cetera. And mm, so, yeah. you know, we talk about diversity. I talk about not only, you know, uh, uh, gender and, and racial diversity, but also uh, across generations. You know, I think Absolutely. You, you need to look at some younger high potential. One of, one of the things that I think is impeding progress, and I've been uh, working with many of my clients in this regard, is that when they look around, they don't see qualified candidates or they don't understand uh, um, the qualifications of candidates. So they they pull from pools of CEOs because CEOs have had experience working in the boardroom. 
So one of the things that I'm establishing and, and I'm writing about is how do companies use uh, an internal advisory board of high potential employees to be uh, uh, to sit with the board members and help advise them on critical issues for the company. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, all of a sudden you get some of the most senior men and women in your organization rubbing shoulders with the board, understanding board dynamics, you know, accepting some of the challenges of the research that the board needs to undertake. So. It, it, it is a marriage between the community of stakeholders and the board. And, and that has been very, very impactful because it gives people those preparatory experiences that will enable them, you know, as future leaders of the company, to sit mm-hmm. on boards and to be their representative uh, on other boards of maybe customer sets and to be recommended for boards because they've had some of that a uh, critical experience of understanding well, what are some of the issues that face a board um, because there there are tough decisions to be made in corporate America. There sure there are. are. And, and, and sorry, Go. Bonnie, this is Patty. Sorry, yep. if I can mm-hmm. just add on to that. Yep. I, I love that. I, I think, Deanna, that is, that is brilliant, and I can't wait to hear more about it. You're right, right? The, the typical talent pool is the C-suite. It makes sense. Those are the folks, especially a CEO. They understand what it means to have P&L ownership, right? And in the more technology kind of spaces, that's hard to come by, really, really hard. And that is absolutely important, right? They have that operational experience. CFOs, to your point, especially with Sarbanes-Oxley, they understand what a board needs when they're in their advisory role, what a board needs, how you interact with them, how they make decisions. And so when we look at that C-suite talent pool and we see that it's filled with the majority of our men, right, isn't it 12% to 14%, it's really not that different from, from the board representation. And it is because there, there's not these mandates, and Bonnie, I know we're going to get into this, but, but I love that there's a program in place, Dana, that you're talking about where it's not just about, okay, so I have a, a C-suite um, role, Awesome. So maybe 50% of the candidates are men, and I actively have to seek out 50% women, right, which is something that I know a lot of folks are trying to do, at least fill that talent pool so we have it. But your point about it doesn't just have to be the C-suite does open it up for the rest of us. It absolutely does. And I'm seeing more and more, as I think you had alluded to, definitely women getting more of an opportunity from a digital marketing perspective, right? They're more representation Mm -hmm. of women, particularly in in B2C, right? And now in B2B, we see that. I have a a, a friend, Fabiana Allen, who got a public board seat straight off the bat because she was a chief compliance officer, right? So bringing those different kinds of of disciplines in um, is really, really important. Not everyone has to be a CEO CEOs need the guidance of others who hold different kinds of expertise. The other important piece here is it's not just about the expertise. Not only is it about you getting into the boardroom because somebody knows who you are, one of the first things they do is say, who do you know? Who do you know? Because these are folks they want introductions, right? Whether it's something political or a new customer or whatever, you're in that board seat not just because of your expertise, but about where your network is, the new introductions you can make on behalf of the board, on behalf of that C-suite team. Very important. That's another benefit, Patty, of what I have been working with boards and communities that 
the communities, meaning the work communities that are part of the organizations they look after, which is by, by creating this opportunity for them to mix with lots of different people in the organization, not just to have the CFO and the CEO come into the boardroom, but to start to really have them have access to some of the other uh, uh, leaders in the company, it becomes not only mentorship but reverse mentorship. The yes. board becomes enlightened as to what's really going on uh, in the organization. It's sort of like uh, uh, that show Undercover Boss. You know, they look mm-hmm. behind the curtain. It's not mm-hmm. just what they're being told. It's not just reading the board book, but it's really touching the community beneath the, uh, the, the CEO and the CFO and understanding what are some of the issues, what are some of the challenges mm-hmm. of the company, and together solving them, you know, Something as simple as, you know, even when they go through search committees, you know, soliciting, you know, some of these advisors from the community, uh, some of the other executives, uh, high potentials in the organization, and, and to rotate them. And, and term limits, I think we need to talk about term uh-huh. limits for boards uh-huh. as well. But it, uh-huh. it gives people access, so it demystifies it. Because yeah. this idea that the board sits on top of the company and it's very hierarchical rather than they are part of a community and their job is to enhance value alongside of the stakeholders who are everyone in that community. It, it, it's a different kind of model. It's a more collaborative model that I'm hoping will open up the opportunity for men and women uh, in this diverse way uh, because the way we think about boards needs to change. Ladies, somebody mentioned the word introduction a minute ago, who you know and who you can introduce. I haven't finished introducing you to our listeners because part of our opening segment is the coffee break segment, What's in Your Cup Today? So I'm going to circle back to Dr. Dana Artie and ask you, Dana, where are you? What time of day is it? Either what are you drinking right now? And I hope it, I know it's something fascinating. Or if not, what do you plan to drink after the show? Go ahead, Dana. So I am sitting in New York City on what is supposed to be a spring day that's uh, hovering around 32. Um, I have just come back from a six-hour flight from uh, attending the TED conference in Vancouver. And so uh, um, from going from one cold, wet environment uh, to arriving on the first day of spring in a snowstorm, I caught an awful cold. So what's in my cup today is hot water and lemon. And it's been in my cup all morning, and I think it will be in my cup until later on in the evening where perhaps a little bit of brandy will Ah. see me me into the evening hours. Dana, do you have a favorite label of brandy you could share with us? People really want to know. Actually, I, I don't have a favorite. Somebody once gifted me a bottle, and I think the only time... I use it as for guests or when I have this kind of uh, congestion and I need to be sure that I can get a good night's sleep. I'm very glad that you are having that. I know you're looking forward to that. And so is your throat. Dr. Patty Fletcher, what are you drinking? Where are you right now? I think you might be in Boston, but tell me, where are you, what time of day, and what's in your cup? Absolutely. I am on the East Coast. I am in my home office in Natick, just outside of, of Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yep. And it's, you know, as, as Dana said, nice and warm. It's very cold here. Um, but that's okay. Um, and I'm staying even a little bit more chill. My drink every single day is, this is going to roll off the tongue. It's a venti black iced tea, unsweetened light on the ice. I'm addicted to them. And 
you know, it's, it's, this is a story of inclusion. So I'm married to an English guy. We've been married for more than, more than half my life. And English people are very serious about their tea. You just don't oh, mess yeah. around. Oh, yeah. And so they call that stuff we call tea in America brown water. And so they're, <laughs> they're just not big fans, right? And if they're very, you know, they, they have it hot and they have it with a spot of milk and sometimes with a teaspoon of sugar. So here I come with my iced tea and they're quite frankly disgusted, but yet they welcome me and they keep it inclusive. So I'm allowed to sit at the table with them with my iced tea. You have earned that. Patty, we had a gentleman from the UK on one of my early shows here on Game Changers Radio about two and a half years ago, and he was equally as unhappy, as disgusted with the way Americans make tea. And he gave us a recipe for exactly, exactly the temperature of the water, exactly Mm -hmm. the thickness of the fine fine, fine China, exactly how you pour, where the leaves should be, what the container for the leaf, how long you should steep it. So we just had a lesson. I wish I could remember what show it was. He was very, very disdainful. I think they, we had somebody two weeks ago call American Tea Dusty. He said, it's dusty. You take a bag out of a box. It's sitting on the shelf. How many months or years? Who knows? Who cares? You put it in water. You say, oh, that's a wonderful cup of tea. He said, that's dusty tea. That's not English tea. I have a comment to make to both of you, uh, my experience on boards. And then we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll go to the round table. But my comment is that in my experience, there are ways for women to get their feet wet on boards by joining community boards, by joining residential cooperative or condo boards, by joining community organization boards, where you may find diversity, you may not find as much of that old boy consigliere type of attitude that Dana was expressing the role of boards originally, but there is a way to get your voice heard. Patty or Dana, either one of you agree with that? Do you have any experience? That's been my experience. I do. If you don't mind, this is Patty. I'd love to jump in. So I would say that the experience on a a non-for-profit board is not equal to the experience you'd have on a for-profit board. However, Mm -hmm. to your point, finding a board, a non-profit board, on a topic that you care about, right, that you're passionate about, because you are going to spend your time, which is your greatest currency, is super important. And remembering that, other people share that passion. So guess Mm -hmm. what happens? People get to know you. Most likely those people have some time, some influence, and could be on other boards, right? So then you start getting introduced, remembering it's about who knows you. They've had a shared experience with you. They've seen you Mm -hmm. in an advisory role, which is what right a board is, is an advisory role. So apps don't do it because you want to get a board seat. Obviously, align it with your passion, the contribution you want to make, those big impact stuff, Dana, like what you were talking about with reverse mentoring. But right. certainly understand, right? And even if you can align it with perhaps there's a company you want to be on the board of and you just happen to notice that this nonprofit that you're very interested in has a shared connection there, right? Mindful board membership would be, would be um, something that would be great to do, absolutely. Thank you, Patty. And, and, and it goes on the resume, the too. We, Go, yep. And the point that we were making before, Bonnie, you know, I think not everyone... You know, uh, many people aspire to be on a board, but not everyone uh, uh, has the opportunity and uh, the privilege and the luxury because it takes a lot of time. And, you know, uh, to be a good board member, you really have to, you know, make the commitment uh, of time and energy. 
And, you know, so I know a lot of people that say, gee, I'd love to be on a board, but, you know, it's, it's not an open playing field for everyone. I mean, mm-hmm. no matter who you are, it, it really still is something that you have to examine and, and be introspective. But what you're suggesting, can you be a contributor to an organization, a not-for-profit organization, a mm-hmm. cultural institution, and can you exercise you know, your ability to make influence, and is that a, an opportunity for you? Oh, I would encourage everyone. In fact, you know, anyone I coach, any executive I coach at any level, I encourage them to be active in their community, to be active in institutions. Uh-huh. Another place that's a good proving ground is a lot of venture and private equity companies look for independent directorship, and they look for subject matter expertise. And so, again, how to prepare yourself is to be the best that you could be in your chosen field to excel, to have point of view, uh, to be established, to be published, uh, to be recognized in your field. And then all of a sudden you have some of the basic background uh, to get noticed. And, and that's uh-huh. the first uh, uh, step. And then beyond getting noticed, how do you get prepared? There are courses you could take several good courses at Harvard and Stanford and other institutions about being a board member, understanding how governance happens. And you do get some of that on uh, institutional boards of philanthropies and and cultural institutions. So, you know, I think it's opportunity and preparedness, but the opportunity Mm -hmm. has to be there. And it's not just the opportunity to sit on a board. You know, uh, that's sort of the cherry on the top of the cake, you know, uh, Mm You, 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 you first have to be the expert in what you do to get recognized uh, for your contribution and for your ability to contribute to a board. And that's both for men and women. You know, I agree. I, I, go ahead, Patty. So, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you, thank you, Dana. Just one thing. So you had mentioned about, um, about VC-backed or, or startup companies, and I, I definitely want to feel the need to say this because I know that you know this, Dana. I'm not sure if listeners do. Your point about you do need to have something to bring to that table. It's really, really important. As, as you know, Bonnie, I sit on the board of Avastia, which is focused on increasing female representation of um, high-growth startups. And things I hear over and over again from the CEOs of these high-growth startups is, I'm not a training ground for a wannabe board member. I have board members because I need something from them. They are there mm-hmm. to advise me, not yeah. me to train them. So exactly. you definitely don't want to leave that, right? So your point, Dana, of what can I as a board member offer to the CEO and the other people with a seat around the table is important for those startups, but it's also important for the not-for-profits as well. Thank you. Right, and I think, I think for many years that, you know, because it was uh, uh, the, uh, the prestige of boards, you know, I'm on the board, I sit on the board mm-hmm. as, as being the pinnacle of a career and then being part of the old boys club. Of course, people wanted to get in that club, you know, right. and so everyone yeah. wanted to be on a board. But, but I think, you know, you have to be introspective and look at what is that responsibility. And, it, it, you know, it, it, it's really not about the accolade. It's about how you can be a contributing member to uh, the stakeholders that you're you're there to represent, and, you know, the stakeholders watch their boards very carefully now. You know, it is an honor to be selected, but, you know, it's a roll-up-your-sleeves kind of honor. You mm-hmm. know, um, 
there are real expectations of how you perform, uh, of how you vote, of of the committees you you select, and, you know, uh, uh, the commitment is is a very serious commitment that you're making. And so um, with lots of fiduciary responsibilities, and I think, you know, people don't always see that. That isn't always Mm -hmm. apparent. They just see the glory, you know, uh, the ringing Mm -hmm. of the bell rather than, I've been chosen, right. The I've been chosen, look at me, I'm on a board. Ladies, we're going to take a break. We're already 32 minutes into the show. Wanted to take a break around 10 minutes ago, but such a good conversation, didn't want to break it up. I'm speaking today with Dr. Dana Ardy. She is a corporate anthropologist. We'll find out a little more about that. And Dr. Patty Fletcher, I know she's a budding writer uh with a true life novel coming up. I don't know if she wants to talk about it, but you can get a little plug in there somewhere, Patty. We're talking about getting on board with women in the board room. So many questions, so many answers. If you're a woman at any level of the corporate, what we used to call the ladder, I don't know what structure we're calling it now. This conversation should be interesting to you, but more to the point, if you're a male in a corporate setting and you know women who look like they have a lot of promise, a lot of great information and expertise to share, a lot of energy up and coming, why don't you open your eyes and consider them for not only ascending up in the ranks of the corporate world, but for a board seat at some future time? A lot of mentoring has to happen here. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. You're listening to Game Changing Women Radio, presented by SAP. We're live. It's March 24, 2015. We'll be right back after the break. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. We'll be right back. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. For women, the pressure to achieve at work is stronger, the hours longer, and the struggle for respect and authority more complex than ever. You want guidance on how to succeed, and you are not alone. Tune in to hear today's powerful women leaders help you make sense of it all. They will get you thinking about how to manage smarter. They will analyze how you can change the game, and they will share their playbooks on how you can make it happen. Game Changing Women is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Game Changing Women, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show using Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Game Changing Women. Welcome back. I'm speaking today with Dr. Dana Artie. She's a corporate anthropologist and Dr. Patty Fletcher. We're in very good good company here. Ladies, I want to start the roundtable. I think we've already been 20 minutes into the roundtable, but officially, welcome to the roundtable. Dr. Dana Artie, I would like you to speak just briefly on, I'm looking at your notes from before the show, and let's project a little bit. We're not at the predictions round yet in the show, but let's project the future of work. You're saying uh, here, we've shifted to a business world where collaboration and connection are replacing hierarchy and bureaucracy. And one more note here, you say the outdated alpha notion of aggressive management has given way to the modern era of cooperative cooperative beta leadership. Can you explain this to us, Dana, and then we'll have Patty chime in? Go ahead. Sure. So, um, 
you know, uh, not to give a shameless plug, but the book that I've just written called The Fall of the Alphas talks about how we used to organize ourselves in business and on boards. There's a whole chapter on boards in a very hierarchical model, you know, and that came from the returning heroes of World War II. And it was just a natural way of organizing ourselves at work. And it really worked, particularly in, in the industrial age that we were in uh, uh, after the, uh, the war. But things are changing, and I talk about all the changes, and I talk about a new form of leadership that's more uh, not like the military model of the alphas, but more like an orchestra where there's a beta leader, and a beta leader is a collaborative leader. Uh, and it's how to how to connect, how to communicate, how to influence, how to curate. And the beta leader is more like uh, the conductor of an orchestra. And they go through, and for any particular set of problems, they pick among the team. They pick among the orchestra. And sometimes you need to have the timpani, and sometimes you need to have the string section or the tuba lead. And it's how to be that kind of what I call beta leader. And in the chapter on boards, I talk about the same thing, how boards were hierarchical and, and boards were there to um, really uh, uh, not guide but really command and control and how we've gone to a more collaborative way that boards are now working with management teams. And so uh, the beta leader is the more evolved leader. It's the more mindful leader. It's the better listener, better communicator, and uh, uh, it's somebody who collaborates and goes through uh, team building uh, and what I call curation. Thank you, Dana. Patty, talk to us. So um, I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, so I, I hang out in the circles with a, a lot of folks who go in and work with Fortune 1000 companies on their what they call their diversity problem, right? And that typical consulting approach, they go and they – they do lots of surveys in the ranks of, of men and of women and, and talk about things about the organization. They talk about the leadership. They talk about where do you see yourself in this company over the next however many years to get a good feeling, a pulse on what's going on. And so what they're coming back with is so fascinating. They're hearing from the millennial white guys saying, mm-hmm. look, I don't want to be chairman of the board. I don't want to be CEO. I see what has happened to these guys who are in those positions. They don't like the lifestyle that these gentlemen have. They don't want that for themselves. Instead, they see themselves, these millennial men, see themselves as partnering with the company, giving them some technical expertise or or leadership or whatever it is that they bring to the table, but they don't want to go the route that others have gone 20, 30, 40 years before them. And so what's been really interesting is getting the ear of the C-suite. Has, they're starting to listen, and, and they're seeing that, oh, my goodness, these young men are saying we need something different. We need new work-life kind of policies. We need a different way to get to the top and have that influence that might not look hierarchical. So it's really interesting that some of these changes are coming because of the millennial men and not because there are women who are saying, hey, the way that this is set up and the constructs of the ladder and of the alpha male and of the way I get from where I am today to where I want to be tomorrow and the sphere of influence I want to have, they're not listening necessarily there, but they are listening to the young white millennial guys. And I really think that contributes to that the alpha male 
might not be our future as it was in the, the Taylor-esque kind of days of, you know, the, the industrial era. And the alpha female, because it was a whole generation of women, the first one, my generation, into the work uh, place that felt like we had to parrot this hierarchical model because that's where we found ourselves. And, in fact, we had to be bigger, badder, fiercer, you know, more aggressive. And I, I don't think that's the case anymore. And to your point, Patty, it's not just the millennial men, but it's the millennial women. People are mm-hmm. crying out for what I call Work-life integration. It's not work-life balance. That's right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's integration. How do you take a successful career and integrate it into a successful life? And yeah. I think people are saying, you know, I want to be very good at what I do, but I want to be collaborative. And it's not all about just moving up for the sake of moving up. If I love what I'm doing and it's giving me great satisfaction, then I just want to be the best at what I do, but I want to be recognized. For it. Mm-hmm. And I want to have a voice at the table, and I want to feel that um, the community values who I am and my contribution. That's and I think right. we're going to see a lot more of that in the future of work. I also think we're going to see uh, contracts, limited contracts, saying, this is what I do. I'm a transformational leader. I know how to you know, uh, um, incite businesses to move along in a certain way, or I bring a particular set of skills. And I want to come here and I want a five-year contract. And if I achieve my goals in five years, then I want a reward at the end of that period. And then I'm going to go somewhere else because I'm going to teach and mentor people in your organization to be there. So you're going to see a lot more of that, you know, leaders not just switching to, to make progress, but switching because they brought their particular set of skills to a company, and the company's benefited from them, and then it's time for them to go somewhere else to face new challenges with the same toolkit that they brought to the last situation. Thank you, Dana. And, Patty, I'm looking at your notes from before the show, and I found something interesting with some examples here. I'd like to just read a couple points here and have you go with it. First of all, you say, women don't need more mentors, and women don't need to be fixed. Bravo. Thank you, Patty. That's what you'll Mm -hmm. be immortalized for. But here's the comment. You say, Helen, Helen Morrissey has taken a quiet, advocate approach through the 30% club in the UK, and I'll let you tell us why. And then you also want to talk a little bit about Sandberg and Mayer, these young entrepreneurial, this superpower breed. I think it's an alpha breed of young women with young families, and they're acting more like men. Uh, talk to me, Patty. What do you see? Yeah, so so I think a few things. I, I do have to mention this research. I think it came out last week, and I'm just dying to share it. Um, Please. Of, of really, the, the problem. So Ernest and Young did this research um, of the S&P 1500, um, and, and Dana, you might have seen this, but they found that men with the names John, Robert, William, or James, there are more of them than there are the total number of women on board. There's a problem here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pat, Patty, say the names again. Say the names again. Um, what are they? John, John Robert? John, Robert, William, or James. And, of course, the Weisenheimers, right, out, out on social media are like, okay, great. So I'm going to name my daughter John and we'll all be all set. And so, the, you know, the point is that it doesn't mean that, that men, and particularly men with those names, are smarter than the rest of us. What it really means is access. Right, so we talk a lot about opportunity. Really what we're talking about is equal access to that opportunity. Women are 50% of bachelor's degrees, 50% of MBAs, 50% of PhDs, 70% of valedictorians in the U.S. 
I think we're smart enough, right? We're just as smart mm-hmm. as the men. And as George, right? And as George said, we're both here. We're 50% of the people walking the earth. Women don't need to be fixed, but neither do men. We're both operating in a system, you know, Dana, to your point, it's antiquated. It doesn't reflect the knowledge economy of where we are, right? And the networked economy, who knows us, who do we know? It doesn't reflect that. Things have to change. So while I appreciate that there are certain women who are out there who have this platform that they have earned and they're they're using that platform to say, hey, here's how I made it. I love that. We should keep those conversations going. A lot of the women who are out there have gotten there from the rules that are in place established for a more male or alpha male kind of success. Dr. Brizendine, back when I was working on my my um, my doctoral research, Dr. Brizendine had come out with a study. She's a neuroscientist, I believe, and it was in the Harvard Business Review. And I know she's written a few books about the male brain and the female brain. And she was talking about why aren't there more women CEOs and therefore not more more people and more females in the boardroom. And what she found was the cultural constructs of how we define the talent pool, right, for those CEOs were earmarked for the boardroom between the ages of 40 and 49. That just so, it's a great time, right? I've earned my my stripes in terms of I know what it means to operationally run a large business, to sell to an enterprise client, to live through Sarbanes-Oxley. I've built up my my reputation. I have a lot of important people of influence in my contact list, right? All of that stuff makes sense. The issue, though, is with women, that is the worst time in the world. If if we have children, they tend to be older, need us on an ad hoc basis. We have chemical things going on in our bodies. Our parents who are aging might need us in a, a very different way, right? So we have all of this, you know, the kind of third, the, the third uh, career path there. And really where we start and what I heard from these women over and over again who I've researched through the years is my life started at 50. My Mm -hmm. plate was cleared. My cup stopped running over. What's wrong with extending that to 50? And, oh, by the way, it's okay that I'm a woman. It's okay that I think differently. I don't have to act like a guy. I don't have to play that game anymore. I'm too old. I don't care. I've earned my stripes. I can be here. I have value, and here's why. Here's why I Mm. have value. Mm. Great statistics. Dana, go ahead. I think one of the gifts of of, uh, uh, women coming into the workforce and exercising their particular style of leadership is that uh, it liberated men to be who they want to be. And it's so exciting for me to see, you know, uh, uh, people come into work and understand what their motivations are, what their life stage and lifestyle is, and, you know, how they form partnerships not only with their organizations but with their significant others to make it happen. And, you know, uh, I, I've, I've talked with many, many uh, young people about, you know, uh, um, we're co-parenting and now's my time to make advancement and he's home caring for the children or, you know, um, he's home going to do what were traditionally gender female roles. And I think one of the values of uh, Sheryl Sandberg's book, you know, which I like quite a bit, women who want to lean in should lean in. But women mm-hmm. who just want to do a really good job and go home to their family should have the right to do that, too. And guess what? One of the benefits of her book, which I think was fantastic, was that men realized that they had choices, too. 
Uh, they they developed an understanding for what women are up against in the workforce and, and maybe can take some sponsorship and some mentorship. And they really recognize that they could lean in or not as well. And And many men are choosing now, you know, to find that work-life integration and not to have to be, you know, the sole breadwinner in families or want to be the nurturers or want to be, you know, play a different role at different times in, in, in their relationships. And I think, you know, we've opened up this whole human rights effort, you know, and uh, I think we're going to see more of that in the future of work. People, you know, job sharing, people taking different times in their careers to make those growth spurts. And we're going to be yeah. much more accepting of them. Thank yeah, you. And, it, and if I, sorry, if I, if I might, just, just going, going to that, I think the important thing is the conversation is happening. That's the important thing. And there's an acknowledgement that the way we have been working, the way we have made, been making business decisions, you know, that the work-life balance versus work-life integration, who can be successful, who can't, depending on what your availability is and if you have kids and all of those weird things, right, that that's not working. And so there are things that I can do without fixing myself because I'm perfectly fine, right? But there are adjustments that I can make. And on the other side, that something has to change with the construct. So one thing, that mentorship thing is really, really important. So one of the things that I would hear over and over again and continue to hear is if a man doesn't know something, he takes the job. If a woman doesn't know something, she takes the class. And I also don't hear a lot of, wow, I'm going to mentor this guy. Instead, I hear... I, that his name mentioned when he's not even in the room because someone's advocating for him or championing for him. So I think some of the things that I ask myself is, what can I do? What can I do to help women advance? What can I do to lift as I rise, right, with other mm-hmm. women? And so it is, how can I advocate? You know what? Mentorship is really, as long as I get exposure and experience, if I am meant to be in the C-suite or in the boardroom, that exposure, right, how I react to the, the, the successes and the failures and how I make them happen and what I do to all of that, that'll all happen. That's okay. It's really getting, again, that access to new experiences, exposure to new people, and that really happens best, not just with mentoring because, of course, some coaching does need to happen. You know, I'm in this situation. What should I do? It's always good to have a personal board of advisors to help you with that. But really, that someone's advocating me to get me in that next position that I may or may not believe I'm ready for. And that's a big issue for women. We tend to want to be an expert before we take a job. That's not really mm-hmm. reality, right? We earn that. We earn that. So that's it's getting right. more folks to say, how can I make a difference here? Thank you, Patty. We, we, I just okay. want to say we have six minutes left till the end, so I just want to get one more quick topic in here. Patty, the Q word comes up in your notes, the quotas. Are quotas the answer? Okay, we have a board, we have 11 people, we've got to have at least two women, duh. Is the quota going to solve the problem, or is it insulting, or is it backwards, or what do you think about quotas? So I'll, I'll start. You know, this is a tough one, right? And, and as I said in my mm-hmm. notes, if you asked me even a year ago, I would have said, oh, dear God, no, no quotas. Mm-hmm. But Sharon Bosmick, who's the CEO of Astia, set me, set me straight and said, she said something which really made it interesting for me. And that was, I might not like quotas, but I like the results of quotas. And I ah. like that. And I look at, yes. And, and so my, my concern with quotas is, Nobody wants to get a job simply because they fit a profile. What I do like is if it gives me equal access to at least half the opportunity, right? I don't want someone on the board who's not qualified, 
But if I'm not Mm -hmm. going to even be able to vet them because a quota isn't there, there's a problem. There are plenty of qualified women who should be on board. So if the quota gets me there, great. The, uh, Helena Morrissey is using her personal relationships to go and talk with chairmen and say, hey, this is important and here's why. And, and by the way, we all have that research about having women on boards and how we outperform financially, bottom line, how we make better acquisition decisions. And look, it's still going to take us 80 years to be on parity with men, right? If the catalyst still isn't there, it's still just stuff on a paper. Yep. Reality check time. Dana, I'm going to give you one minute. I want Dana to have one minute to respond about the quotas, your point of view. And then ladies, I'm going to give you each about 90 seconds for your wrap up predictions in the crystal ball. So Dana, thoughts on quotas. What do you observe as a corporate anthropologist? I, I do not believe in quotas. I believe in education. I think that if boards are educated, if they work with, uh, trained professionals who can help them develop a balanced slate of candidates, um, than choosing the best athlete for the company at that point in time. But uh, I do think that they have to be educated, and I think they have to be introduced to the pool of women that Patty has identified. There are plenty of high-potential people, uh, and they come in all sizes, shapes, races, genders, ages. You know, And I think it's just doing your homework, not just being expedient, but really looking at what's in the best interest. It's, it's, it's a... A, a recruiting issue, and it's an introduction issue. And I also think companies should have advisory boards, and people from the advisory boards may catch their attention, and they get a chance to get to know them and what they could do, and then they could bring them into the boardroom. So there's lots of ways of educating and developing the bench, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. But I do not believe in quotas. Thank you. Guess what? I'm going to give you one minute for your predictions, Dr. Dana R.D. Can you see to the year 2020, or how far out do you want to predict? If we met again, what would be different about this conversation, getting on board with women in the boardroom? Dana, one minute, go. I think that what would happen in 2020 is we'd be talking about the efficacy of boards, how they function, what specialties are not being mined for boards, um, how to create more collaboration between boards of directors and the people they serve, their shareholders, and the community of uh, people that are influences in the organization. So uh, I'm looking at it 2020 thinking that, you know, we've created much more balance of uh, gender in the, in the boardroom, and now we're looking at other ways that boards could be impactful on behalf of shareholders. Thank you very much. Well put. And Dr. Patty Fletcher, predictions. Yes, and we like optimism. Patty Fletcher, can you go all the way to 2020, or what do you see in that crystal ball I know you got out for the show? Absolutely. So so here's what I'm hoping will happen in 2020. This stops being a discussion about women. It stops being a discussion based on a philanthropic need to have more women represented, and instead it is a discussion about an economic imperative that this is about best financial decisions, about having the representation not just of women, right, Dennis, but to other other um, kinds of folks in the boardroom. It's about economics and economic impact, not about a nice philanthropic cause that we can feel good about. Interesting. Patty, quick question. If you had a 15-year-old daughter or granddaughter, what would you say to her about aspiring to be in a decision-making role in a board someday somewhere in her future? Is something good to look up to and forward to and plan for or something she might just fall into? 
Absolutely. I have a 14-year-old and 10-year-old daughters, and for both of them, because they have such big dreams as, as children do, I absolutely believe that the boardroom is one of the best places to make those big changes and big dreams happen. I'm going to tell my 16-year-old granddaughter exactly that. Thank you very much, Patty. I want to say thank you to my very articulate, very insightful, very expert guest, Dr. Dana R.D., Corporate Anthropology Advisors. Thank you, Dana. I saw your book on Amazon. Best wishes with that. Looks fascinating. And Dr. Thank Patty you. Fletcher, IHS and PSD Network. Patty, you want to name your book or you're not ready to say it yet? Quick. Um, it's called Waiting to Hit Rock Bottom. And, um, yep. Just uh, follow me and, and on Twitter, and I'll be sharing more about it. But it's certainly about women and, and transformation. Thank you very much. And a shout-out to, of course, our CLO and executive producer of this show, Jenny Dearborn at SAP. Thanks, Jenny, for inviting such dynamic women to a dynamic topic. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and I want to say thank you to Brad Comer at Business Channel on World Talk Radio for being our wonderful engineer. And here's my call to action, all of you out there. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. I'll be back tomorrow morning, 11 a.m. Eastern, with a live edition of Coffee Break with Game Changers. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game Changing Women, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.